Hi, everyone. This is John. And again, we have an amazing, transformative guest, Dawson Church. I've known Dawson for some years now, and we've worked together on some projects and done some podcasting and conversations. He is truly an integral figure. He brings acute knowledge of science along with the right brain, spiritual, poetic dimension that when it finally fits together, creates a whole new level of being. I think you're going to love this. You're going to love him. We talk a lot about his emotional freedom technique, and it's a very practical way that you can go and work through your PSDs and hurtful memories and come out the other end a better, happier, more effective person. You're going to love it, and I love him. See you there. Welcome to Deep Transformation, Self, Society, Spirit. Life-enhancing, paradigm-rattling conversations with cutting-edge thinkers, contemplatives, and activists with Dr. Roger Walsh and John Dupuy. Join us in the evolutionary fast lane as we take a deep dive into transformational practice, peak experience, profound understanding, powerful contribution. My name is still John Dupuy, and that's my friend and colleague, Roger Walsh. He's the good-looking one. Well, no, the, no, he's one of the good-looking ones. I'll put it that way. And, <laughs> and we, we, have, we, hey, have, you, John? <laughs> we have Dawson Church with us today. And I was trying to find something. I'm excited to have, the, you know, such a cliche in, in podcast interviews. And so I was thinking, what can I say besides I'm excited, which I am? I'm deeply happy. Let's put it that way. And we've done some things before, Dawson, and we are currently working on some projects with your work, your guided meditations, and uh, our sound technology at iAwake. So it's a real blessing not only to speak to you, be able to collaborate and hopefully do some good in the world. I'm in my home in southern Utah, and all my Dawson library is in Louisiana, where I otherwise live. So gosh, what am I going to do with all my books, you know, which I really like, and I really marked up and read and gained so much from. So I just went on the internet and started listening to podcasts. And then I, I started doing your your tapping EFT tracks or, or recordings while I, I was listening to, to transparency to some I awake tracks. And it was just what the doctor ordered. Uh, it was very, very good. And Roger said he was going to be working with, with the, the the technique too. So maybe we'll come from, you know, a place that's, I love the intellect. It's wonderful. And you guys are both brilliant, but we'll come from an experiential place too. And I have certainly worked with trauma, PhD and altered states. Uh, just have been a part of my work with recovery and in my life and, and what I do in the world. And I know you're, you're just, you know, extraordinary on it. And, and you're, you're deeply based in, in science I mean, you, you've got it covered to not just the necessary, but the, the extraordinarily proficient uh, use of science and, and, and assets. So you bring it together, of course, with, with, with the, the great spiritual traditions and what the mystics has always said and brought it into the 21st century in a very healing, positive way. And you've also worked with a lot of veterans, PTSD. And of course, I'm a vet and I have a lot of brothers I know went through a lot of stuff. So I deeply from my heart appreciate that. Anyway, God bless you. And thank you so much, Dawson, for being here. It's really appreciated. Oh, what a joy. And yeah, science does give us so much valuable perspective on all these giant questions. 
happens. And the ones of spirituality, of course, are the infinite ones that people have been trying to figure out for millennia, like how do we be more happy? How do we be happy to start with? How do we reach for something greater than ourselves? And now through the lens of science, it is accelerating our quest for answers dramatically. And so the combination of the two is, is thrilling and we're at the point in history where they're coming together and they're making possible levels of human transformation that weren't possible before. So I'm thrilled to be part of this big quest with you both, Roger and John. Thank you. Yeah, you're, you're one of the people who is bringing these two worlds together in a beautiful way, Dawson. And you're right, we are at a new point in history as regards uh, psychological transformation, growth potential, and opening into spiritual dimensions. We've had first the op opening to and recovery of the great contemplative traditions, first with the influx of Eastern traditions uh, in the 60s, leading to a revival of the recognition that, we, yes, in the West, we have our own spiritual heritage of contemplative practices. And initially, there was the sense that, well, the kind of euphoria, well, they do it all. But then we came to realize, um, <laughs> no, <laughs> they don't. <laughs> they can do a lot and very profound and valuable things. They can transform. They have, well, there are now 6,000 research studies on meditation alone, as you well know. But there has been now growing recognition of the complement, potential complementarity of Western psychotherapeutic techniques, some of the techniques and such as emotional freedom techniques that you've pioneered as ways of complementing, facilitating and even catalyzing contemplative growth. And love to hear you talk about that. And also at some stage, love to hear you to dive a little into emotional freedom techniques because they're, they're really quite very valuable. Yeah, profound. And I was having a conversation yesterday, actually, with a friend of mine, and we were both involved in a spiritual group in the 1970s. And when I turned 13, 14, 15, I began reading the works of people like Dr. Paul Brunton, who was the great student of Ramana Maharshi, again, who introduced the whole idea of non-dualism to the West. And so there were these big influences like that early on. At that point, people, a lot of teenagers like me were reading, were reading Alan Watts, were reading Elvis Huxley, and these were profound influences on us then in the 50s, 60s, 70s. And yet my friend and I, we both became involved, actually went to go live on one of their, those communities when I was 15 years old, and we became deeply involved in them. And so the one of the, I was looking through my journal this morning and looking at some of the teachings we learned back then. And one of them, for example, was an old Indian concept of a water container, a cistern. And the teaching from, again, going back thousands of years in India, was that we have a muddy cistern. We have all this this junk, all this garbage in our cistern from the world. We get, we have negative negative experiences as children. They build up over time. They, in the worst of cases, they drive people to addiction, suicide, and harm, harmful behaviors. And at the very least, they leave people miserable. So we have this dirty cistern. And according to this old teaching, the, the we 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 pour in pure water. We we meditate. And then we pour in a little bit of pure water through our meditation every morning, every afternoon. And gradually that water that we're pouring in begins to displace a lot of the mud and eventually keep on pouring in enough 
pure water and it cleans out the whole sister and then you have a sister and a mind a body subconscious realm full of just this beautiful stuff you have then accumulated in meditation and so that that was the model that we transcend our past we transcend our trauma and research shows us now PTSD research shows us that's just not true. And one of the big catalysts for that was the, the invasion by the US of Iraq. And when that happened in the early 2000s, so Afghanistan and Iraq in the first few years of the 20th century resulted in this big group of people eventually coming back. At this point, over two and a half, over two million Americans have been deployed to one of those conflicts and come back, two million people. And so according to the VA, Veterans Administration uh, analyses, about a quarter of them develop PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, characterized by flashbacks, nightmares, intrusive thoughts, hypervigilance, and so on, but three quarters don't. And so a big question in, in research around 2007, 2009, 2012 was what's different about them? This one group has seen people blown apart. They've lost friends of theirs in combat. They've been exposed to all the horrors of war and they emerge not necessarily unscathed, but able to cope. In fact, for some people it even leads to what we call post-traumatic growth. But for that quarter of people, it leads to post-traumatic stress disorder. And that means that we have, a, we have a half a million new Americans, newly diagnosed PTSD cases that are now hitting the VA and hitting society. So what they found was that there's, as they looked into the distinction between those who get PTSD and those who are resilient, is they found that the, the, the biggest single factor is childhood trauma. And we've known since the adverse childhood experiences study in the 1990s that adverse childhood experiences result in adult disease. But what this showed is that trauma, if unresolved, leads to both psychological and physical distress. And so unfortunately for those old Vedantists and that wonderful Indian, ancient Indian metaphor of the water pouring into the cistern, fresh water pouring in does not clear out the mud. If you have this layer, this substrate in your subconscious mind and your body, uh, again, Bessel van der Kolk's wonderful book is titled The Body Keeps a Score. And if your body from early childhood point has been accumulating all of these negative memories, all of this trauma, meditating and aligning with that elevated state is definitely gonna help. It shows you there's a place out there beyond your suffering. It does not clear out the trauma. It does not clear out the cistern and you have to do something else. And so that's why we need EFT, EMDR, somatic experiencing, yoga therapy. There are all these body-based therapies now and they show that you can clear out that trauma extremely quickly. And so review research reviews, clinical guidelines, I played a part in publishing two sets of clinical guidelines, one for VA, one for, one for veterans, one for for civilians in, in major scientific journals. And we have a protocol there. And essentially it's 10 sessions, 10 one hour sessions of EFT. And after 10 sessions, people emerge and in 90% of their cases, they are free of those symptoms. So powerful technologies emerging that EFT is one of those. And EFT simply is the stimulation of acupuncture meridians. So we're using energy techniques, again, ancient ones drawn from the tradition of energy healing to 
shift people's awareness, shift their consciousness, shift their, their PTSD symptoms, and it's effective for nine out of 10 people in 10 sessions or fewer. And that's that's the threshold we're at now. And again, that does clear off the cistern. And at that point, all the things you're doing to bring fresh water in start to really transform your life. So that's a kind of a, a, a very a very brief overview of what science tells us. And this this could be done with groups of groups of people, not just individual sessions. You can have 50 people in a room and guide them through this process. It's a combination of 10 individual one-to-one therapy sessions, one-hour sessions. And we also recommend group sessions and social support. We know from one study I did of 218 veterans and their spouses that having the spouse there in the room having a family member, having a son or a daughter or a parent there in the room with them dramatically improves their chances of recovery. So it's veterans and people around them who are who are supportive. And it's both groups, like in, 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 in several veterans groups, we, we, we find that veterans trigger each other for better or for worse, for either, for either making their symptoms more severe or less severe. And so we have special procedures, for example, with EFT, if a, veteran's, if a veteran is, is in a group, say 12, 18, 19 other people, and they start to go into a PTSD episode or a flashback, we have special procedures. But the beauty of it is that when they recover, and again, that recovery period from the particular memory is usually very brief, it then initially triggers the other veterans in the room to go into those same emotional states. And when that, that, that veteran shifts into resolution through EFT, it in turn affects other people in the room. So there's this phenomenon we measure called borrowing benefits. And if you go onto, onto pubmed.gov, just look at my name, Dawson Church, and look for some of the borrowing benefits studies, you will see that they are extremely effective. So it's both and, John, both individual sessions and also group work, especially family support. And we should uh, give a little context here, Dawson. You've given a lot of information, so let's let's uh, make sure everyone's on board here. First off, you talked about EMDR. Uh, well, first off, you talked about post-traumatic stress disorder, and we should acknowledge first off that that's a, been a very difficult syndrome to treat. It can be extremely disabling for people. There are vets hiding in in their apartments only going out when the you know and shopping when they're at midnight when there are almost no one around etc their lives are just just upended completely so this is a very severe disorder until quite recently that we haven't had much to really be effective with it but thanks to techniques and you mentioned a couple but you mentioned by the the letters so i just want to extend emdr is emotional desensitization reprocessing and the eft is is the technique that you're so much associated with and have done so much to both research and popularize that's the emotional freedom techniques and we should mention your book EFT manual, which I'm astounded to read, has sold over a million copies, which says a lot. Yeah. So that's the that's the context for for what you're you're talking about here, and and just to acknowledge how remarkable it is that there there are now some therapies that can be quite effective in quite a short period of time. And you also mentioned that there's. I forget, I didn't quite catch the term used, but I would frame it as kind of an emotional, a positive emotional contagion. Yes. 
that veterans can benefit from one another. And it's the, and we now know there's a lot of research showing that we are far more exquisitely sensitive to each other and kind of resonate like tuning forks emotionally, psychologically. And I think you're pointing the potential benefits of that. Yes. In one study of EFT done in groups, we found that in this particular, we, this was a, a series of seven retreats for veterans and their spouses. We found that almost 80% of veterans in that group in those retreats had PTSD. And the other thing we found was that 29% of the spouses had PTSD. And that's a phenomenon called transferred PTSD or acquired PTSD, where living with someone with PTSD is profoundly disabling. Once we worked with them in a seven day retreat, and we then followed up with them later on, we found that that number of almost 80% of veterans having PTSD symptoms dropped down to below 30% just from one week of group work. And that in the spouses, it dropped down from, from 29% of spouses to 4% of spouses still had observable PTSD symptoms in, on, on follow-up. Like one, one young veteran I worked with, he was working with a particular issue, which was that he had many adverse experiences, he came back from, from four tours of duty in Iraq with symptoms and, and people in his family and community said, you, you just changed. I was working with him on one memory because we, we work with people memory by memory. This isn't some sort of you know magic wand where you wave it and tap. We use, you use tapping to stimulate those acupressure points. So it's not like we just tap with a veteran once or work on an overarching issue. We work event by event. And they bring into the first session usually lists of events that have really affected them emotionally. And so one of his, his items on his list was that one day he, he, was, he was a medic in Iraq during the Battle of Fallujah. And one day the job assigned to him for that day was to clean the uniform of one of his friends who had been killed in combat. The, the body had been out in the Iraq sun for a couple of, of days. It smelled terrible. And he had this uniform to now to clean up, to send back to the man's family in the U.S. And the smell was so bad that this young soldier was literally running into the medic's hut, doing a little cleaning the uniform, then running outside to get a breath of fresh air, hyperventilating, holding his breath while he ran back in. And we measure people's level of triggering. It was a 10 out of 10. So we were tapping and we were having him remember the body fluids, all the, the, the horror of this event for him. But we were tapping at the same time and his number dropped way down. He was just basically, after about 30 minutes of tapping, tapping, everything shifted for him. I ran into that young veteran a few months later and I thought, well, I, I don't know if the effect was permanent. Let's ask him again. So I had him tell the story again, and his number was a zero, and he remembered the whole event, detail by detail. He could describe it all. He just wasn't triggered by it. And so he was at a zero. And he then said, and in psychology, we call this a cognitive shift. This young man then said, I'm glad I drew the duty of cleaning his uniform, because I love this guy, and I can send that uniform back to his family in the U.S., with love. And so suddenly this has gone from this shattering event in his life and it's been transformed by just shifting energy into this act of love that he now perceives it as. His, it's the same event. So the event. Nothing changed about his past or about the uniform or the death of his friend, 
But what's changed completely is the cognitive frame through which he sees the picture. And that's what EFT does. It removes all the emotional tags. In fact, in one study I did, it literally, this is an epigenetic study. We're looking at gene expression with EFT. We found that the genes, the gene expression of veterans changed over the course of 10 sessions. And these little molecules called microRNAs that are associated with traumatic stress were literally popping off the genome. Literally, we're measuring strands of DNA and these little microRNAs that are associated with traumatic stress literally were not there. They they dropped off the genome between session one and session 10. So this is affecting people profoundly, emotionally and mentally, and it's affecting their physical bodies. Dawson, you've talked now about the extraordinary benefits of EFT, emotional freedom techniques, and you've given just a couple of the elements, tapping. Might be nice if you could just give a little more detailed description of exactly what the technique is, because I imagine a lot of our listeners may not be familiar with it. Yeah, it borrows from some really great traditional psychology talk therapy techniques, and those are exposure and cognitive therapies. And so exposure means you think about the bad stuff. And it's quite ironic. Uh, people go to our workshops and we just focus on all the bad stuff in your life, the bad stuff in your childhood, the bad stuff from last week, the bad stuff you're expecting in the future. And to people who are steeped in positive psychology, it's like, oh my goodness, where's the positivity here? And it's nowhere to be found. We just have people take a deep dive into all this stuff, all that mud in the cistern. And what happens typically with veterans is that they discover after tapping just two or three times that they can go into those traumatic memories safely. So that's exposure. You remember the thing. That session with that young veteran would not have worked effectively had he not relived the experience intensely. And essentially to counter condition, strongly condition neural bundles in the brain having to do with with traumatic stress, with anxiety, with depression, with all of the factors that accompany PTSD, to effectively decondition those, you have to get them lit up first. Before you you can depotentiate a neural bundle, you have to light up the neural bundle. If nothing's happening with that neural bundle, then you can't effectively treat that disorder. So we deliberately have people remember the worst stuff in their lives. And that is a technique called exposure. And research shows that exposure therapy is already pretty helpful. And that you actually can't heal effectively, usually, unless you have exposure in the mix. So nobody wants to go think about the bad stuff in their past. But usually, typically, once a veteran has learned EFT and done it on a few different events, they realize, oh, I have a safe space. It lets me go in and read of my trauma and I let it go, and I can do more. So exposure is number the first technique. The second is cognitive acceptance. And this is profound. The great 20th century family therapist Carl Rogers said, called, he called this the paradox of healing. He said, the paradox of healing is that only when I accept myself exactly the way I am, just the way I am, can I begin to change? It's it's just the opposite of what we think. We think, oh, well, you know, once I get better, once I once I reach my goal weight, once I reach my my financial goals, once I improve, once I take this course, once I get get enlightened, then I'll accept myself, I'll love myself. And EFT not only does not have you think positively, but actually has you you accept and love yourself unconditionally, just the way you are with all your problems with smoking, with addiction, with lack of compassion, with judgmentalism, with anger, with pain, whatever it might be, you actually literally accept yourself exactly the way you are without changing. Now, that, that, and again, 
Carl Rogers called that the paradox of growth, but he said that's the starting point for transformation. So with EFT, we have exposure, remembering the bad stuff, accepting the bad stuff just the way it is. There's a book called EFT for Cancer, and those cancer patients just begin that there. They completely accept the fact of where they are right now with all of those symptoms. And then the third thing of the three ingredients to EFT is tapping. So when we tap on acupuncture points, this is the, on the small intestine point, it's the most tapped point, but we tap on all the other meridians as well. When we tap on those points, very interesting things happen with the body's energy system. Signals travel throughout the connective tissue. And so people typically feel physical dysphoria in some part of their body. They may feel a, like a, a punch in the gut. They might feel their heart pounding. They might feel their throat constricting. That tends to just go away. And so those physical symptoms of stress just go down really quickly, like in one to two minutes. It's just absolutely amazing. You watch a person who's like processing a, a car crash and they're sitting there rigid, telling you the story and their body is not moving and their throat is all tight and their heart's pounding, they're flushed. Two minutes later, they're telling you about the car crash, they're moving their body around, their facial flushing has disappeared, their heart rate's gone back to normal. It doesn't take long if you address it at the level of the energy system with the stimulation of these acupuncture points. So EFT includes all three of those. And then the other energetic component of this being an energy psychology or energy therapy is that when we measure people's energy in their brains with either an EEG or an MRI, we see that when people get stressed, they have activation of the emotional brain. The limbic system gets highly active when you either have a threat or you remember a threat, and actually the body treats remembering the threat much the way it treats an actual physical proximate threat. So when you just remember the blood in the uniform, when you just remember the car crash, remember the divorce, often your body will go into fight or flight as well to some degree. And so with EFT, when we put people in a scanner and scan their brains and have them think about the bad stuff in their lives, usually the emotional midbrain, it starts to process the fight or flight response and it gets highly active. And you see the whole limbic system get lit up on either the, those EEG or those MRI scans when people tune in trauma or highly emotional events. And when you then put them back in the scanner after EFT, they still remember the events, but the limbic system is quiet. Again, the content of the memory is still there, all the emotional intensity around it is gone. And that shows up in the energy signature of the way the brain is processing information. Oh, beautiful. And I want to just highlight a couple of the points you made there, Dawson, and particularly the fact that two of the major elements of this EFT emotional freedom techniques are so apparently counterintuitive. First off, that in order to heal, we have to be willing to open ourselves to the very experiences we've tried to avoid. And if you and so you, you frame that as exposure therapy. And it seems to be a general principle of psychotherapy that a lot of what we're doing is is providing a safe space in which people can experience that which they've been unwilling to formally experience. Yes. And that that our usual reaction to painful emotional experiences is to try and get away from them as fast as possible. We know from psychological and conditioning from so-called escape avoidance conditioning, that when we do that, when we pull away from, push away, repress a 
painful experiences, we actually increase our aversion to them. And you're doing exactly the opposite. And you're giving people a chance to find out that, oh, they don't have to be scared. And that actually just opening to an experience tends to allow to decondition, to unravel, to release, to heal. So that's, that's, that's counterintuitive and, and yet very effective, as you said. Lots of research to back it up. The other counterintuitive thing you mentioned was uh, self-acceptance and that you called the paradox of growth from Carl Rogers and the, that self-acceptance is so crucial in reducing the resistance and, and intrapsychic conflict, which, which failure to self-accept brings. And that, that very self-acceptance allows growth to happen. Carl Jung had a beautiful statement. He said, self-acceptance is the acid test of maturity. Ah. And it's like, that's a, yeah, that's a powerful one. So, so I just want to emphasize these two very apparently counterintuitive healing modalities that you've made use of in your work. That is powerful. I'm writing it down. Self-acceptance is the acid test of... Acid test. I think it was maturity, but I'll have to find the last word. I'm not sure of the last word. That's what you said earlier, of maturity, but, you know, that yeah. seems to work. <laughs> you know, I have also, I've suffered from depression, from PTSD, trauma. I've had panic attacks. I did, without knowing what it was. So this is a very somatic thing also. It's not just in your head. Panic attacks can be terrifying. You feel like you're dying and you have no, re you don't know what's going on. And it just seems to be energetically, this stuff just expresses itself. And I, I wonder if you notice, there's a couple of things, you know, it takes a lot of energy that gets released during these panic attacks. A lot of energy is psychic energy is used to repress or keep these things out of consciousness. So when we remove the charges from these traumatic events or memories, in other words, instead of like, it's not like a VR camera, you know, you're right there back in the experience, 3D and experiencing the intensity of it. It's more like looking at a black and white photograph. Do you notice that there is a release of energy that can be used positively in, in loving others, in creating and being happy and playing music or doing whatever your, your callings are. Have you seen that? Yeah, because all this energy is bound up in keeping yourself safe and hypervigilance and avoidance. And that takes a lot of focus. And when all of those symptoms go away, and again, our average drop in symptoms in the randomized controlled trials of EFD for PTSD, the average drop in symptoms in veterans is 65%, that those, those symptoms drop by 65%. So all that energy is no longer being used for self-protection and suddenly it becomes freed up for creativity. So in my more recent research now, I'm studying things like flow states, creativity, business productivity. I now have a bunch of data coming in over the next year on that. And we'll see if as people are releasing trauma and entering flow states, if their business productivity increases and our hypothesis is that it will. Yeah. And just to give a personal anecdote, I had a very dramatic experience of that in my own psychotherapy. I, 
at one stage I ran in I ran into a set of limiting beliefs and some of them turned out to be about sleep and I found I had these beliefs if I don't get enough sleep I won't be able to function I'll feel terrible I'll go crazy etc etc it was a very interesting experience that as I unearthed these limiting beliefs that the amount of sleep the amount of energy I had just increased dramatically and the amount of sleep I needed actually dropped dramatically. I used to die if I didn't get eight hours enough. For about a decade, I lived happily on four. And then, you know, gradually my needs increased increased again as I aged. But uh, it was very dramatic and completely surprising to me just how powerful those limiting beliefs and energy release and availability could be. Yeah, I, I believe that we're meant to live with a huge amount of energy. And I know that I have more energy now as I'm hitting 70, close to 70, way more than I had when I was 35 or 45. And it's just this, this, this passion for life. When you clear trauma, you start to move into these elevated states, you make that your practice. Like I meditate in the morning and I'm just an addictive meditator. I wake up like this morning I woke up. I normally wake up around 5, 5.30. This morning I woke up at 4.30 and I just absolutely was craving that meditative state. So I washed up as quickly as I could. And I thought, wow, I get an extra hour to meditate this morning. Yay. And so I just dove into it, spent two hours rather than one. And then you, you start the day. You are so positive. You are so creative. You are so just feeling yourself being the channel. I mean, for one thing, when you're, when you're, when you're leaving what I call in my book, Mind to Matter, I call it local mind versus non-local mind, which I borrowed from Larry Dossi. And so in meditation, you leave, lo- you leave your local reality and you enter these non-local states of consciousness. So you hang out in non-local for a while with the universe and all the creativity and love and joy and compassion there is up there. So you're there for a while, you know, an hour, two hours. When you start the day, you are so full, or your work day, you are so full of energy, you're so full of creativity, you're so full of joy, it's just pouring out through you, and you start to have creative ideas. In fact, what I've been having to try and mention to people who are, we have various programs to enter these non-dual states. We have one right now called the 21-Day Walk with Your Higher Power. 21-Day Walk with Your Higher Power is 21 days that are very structured, and we're making it available almost free on our website. So we're getting thousands of people who are signing up for this now. What they're finding isn't just that they're entering non-local mind, and then they're making contact with their higher power, whatever they, they think of that as being. But when they then are in those spaces, they are then getting ideas for their parenting, for problem solving in their relationships, for their careers, for work, for their bodies, for food, for eating, for the way they they drink water. It's changing their relationship to things like stimulants. And so it is really having radical effects out there. You focus on non-local and then your local reality starts to change as well. And we're having to just remind people, hey, I know you're going to get a, a whole download of fabulous ideas for your business, but just wait till you're done with your meditation. So having people now keep in this program, keep two journals. One is for what's happening in those non-local states. So just writing about those and recording those. And the second one is for all the productive, amazing creative ideas you'll have at work and in your local reality. And in one study, it showed that people's level of creativity doubled in those flow states. Their productivity went up dramatically. 
and that their ability to solve problems, this was a study by DARPA, the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, found that when they enter these elevated states, their ability to solve complicated problems goes up by 490%. So now you're faced with a hard problem at work or in your family life or in your money, and you have a five-fold increase in your ability to solve hard problems. So it makes a dramatic effect out there. And I'm just reminding people, hey, stay up here for a while and then have that second journal, that second piece of paper on which you write all your business ideas and stay with that process of remaining in non-local mind for a while and then move into local mind, write down those, those ideas in that second journal, and then you start to work on really having an impact in the world around you on that level. So it definitely affects both dimensions. Yeah, Dawson, I've been I've been talking about that for for years now. The meditation, of course, we've been using the brain entrainment technology, but it's not just about reaching that inner stillness. Sometimes, and it's a desired state, you can do great thinking, or you tap into that inner wisdom voice. And I had experience the other day. I meditated for three hours because I had extra time. Like you, I was like, "Yippee, I'm going to do this." And and I I just got into one of these non-local states and brought it back and i picked up my guitar i it's one of my practices i play guitar a lot and some some licks and pieces that i just hadn't figured out yet just <laughs> immediately came out i was like hey it's so good so yeah this stuff is yeah the, the releasing of trauma and and i noticed when i was i've been working with your tracks for the last few days i mean your 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 meditations and your your guided meditations on youtube and it's not just about accessing the pain, but it's about accessing the gain, accessing the positivity. The one you were talking about a lot is the purpose of your life, you know, finding that highest point in this coming year and, and releasing that, which is one of the most important things about being a human being is finding what that thing is. So yeah, these various benefits are the fruits of doing this inner work and the meditation and the tapping uh, gets you into these deep, still, non-local, higher power beyond your small self. But then when you come back to the small self, it also releases the best of you, which is, of course, nothing other than the, the big self manifesting itself through you. And these things and creativity and problem solutions and being able to see new angles on relationships and forgiving and resentments and this and that really work themselves out. Yes. And what you see in the brain is a process that neuroscientists called binding. And it's when different parts of the brain come together to collaborate on new ideas. And the wave that we see predominantly in binding is gamma. And so the wave of creativity is gamma and binding occurs when there are analogies that are brought together. Like I was trying to, in my book, The Genie in Your Genes, one day I was really trying to figure out how to express the difference between mechanical forms of intervention. Like, you know, we, we take a pill or we get surgery or we get, we do something physically on the outside world versus the power of energy to make things happen in our, our lives. And how do you illustrate the, the difference between attacking your problems, approaching your problems mechanistically from the material point of view and working on, on them energetically. And so I, I was really just wondering, I, I, you know, when you're a science writer like me, you have to come up with analogies that are impactful for people. And so I was 
I was trying to figure out what do I do? How do I, what's the, what's the perfect analogy for that? And I, I was uh, at a conference and I was just really chewing on this problem as I walked to my car and pretty much unconsciously hit the uh, electronic unlock button on my key fob. And I then realized, oh, either from 20 feet away, I click this button and the car unlocks, or I can walk up to the car, insert mechanically the blade of the key and turn it mechanically, and I can unlock the car that way as well. But if I do it through energy by clicking on the key fob button, it's going to happen much quicker and much more efficiently. And suddenly, boom, I had my analogy. So you find that you have these creative ideas. Albert Einstein said that virtually every single scientific discovery has been made in altered states. Napoleon Hill wrote about the same thing that they could grow rich. He called it his, his invisible counsel. He said that he would have tough, insoluble problems to deal with. And he would then go and enter this reverie this elevated state, this is what we would now call the flow state. And he would imagine an invisible council. And at this big round table, there were all these people like Marie Curie and Thomas Edison and Abraham Lincoln and Jesus and Muhammad and all of these beings, Mother Mary, were all around this, this table. And he'd say, okay, I have a problem I can't solve. Can, can you guys help me? And he'd walk out of that reverie, that flow state, that meditative state, because by, by the way, flow and meditation look the same in the brain. And I, I actually show you all those brain waves in, in my book, Bliss Brain. I show you what all those brain waves look like. And we know that the, the eye wake tracks put you into that, that kind of a flow state. But he'd go to those states, he, he'd, he'd enter them, taking a problem with him, he'd come out of them and he'd have the solution with him. So it is powerful how your whole outer life just gets unstuck. When you are applying this energy, you're binding, you're bringing in ideas from, you know, it's not really that would link what I was talking about epigenetics with a car key, but suddenly I'm grabbing an idea from one part of my brain and applying it to another part of my brain. And that's what happens in binding. And gamma is that brainwave. That means that it's all coming together. Monks, these highly happy, highly creative monks, they can have up to 25 times the gamma of a normal human being. They have unbelievable amounts of gamma. They can sustain gamma for a long time. So what we see in the brain is that they are, they're in states of happiness that the average person cannot even imagine. They're just up there beyond bliss. It is gonna then show up in the form of what they do when they're not meditating. What do they do? They go and feed the hungry and they take care of the sick and they help people with their spiritual growth. They do practical things in the world to help the world be a better place. So yeah, it's wonderful to be in those states of creativity, whether it's playing your guitar or working off those licks or a problem in your business or family, all kinds of things happen in that binding state that don't happen in people who aren't able to access those, those states of consciousness. Yeah, and, and contact with that just makes you have more hope for life. And makes you glad to be alive. And oh yeah, you know, in the dark places, it seems there's, there's, it's random. There's no purpose. There's no meaning. There's no function. It's just one bad joke after another. And we get into these states, and all of a sudden, hey, I have a reason to hang out. Have a reason to live. You know, and it obviously that changes everything. It changes close family relationship, your your friends, your work. It just can't be overstated how important this sort of thing is. And it's anyway. I, 
thank you for it, but it saved my life. I wouldn't be here if I hadn't been able to experience some of the things you're experiencing because I was very, very, very low. Yeah. Very dark. And a lot, a lot of people, they live that way. And that famous saying that all men live lives of quiet desperation. And when I grew up, I grew up in quiet desperation as a child. I mean, I was just suicidal when I was 12, 13, 14. I couldn't wait to leave. I just didn't want to be here at all. And most people I knew, I was in a church. My father was a minister. We had a big group of clergy we moved among. And they were as miserable as can be. And then I you know, got into Buddhism and Hinduism and People were a little less miserable sometimes after meditation for a while, but they, they weren't very happy. And then in my book, Bliss Brain, I, I begin in chapter one. So I was supposed to write the book for Hay House. I had a contract and I was going to write the book. But it was all about post-traumatic growth and about how, about the circuits. There are four distinct circuits that we find active in the brains of people in flow and meditators. But then I had something that happened that just put my, all my practices to the test. And that was that my house burned down in October of 2017. It's called the Tubbs Fire, October 9th. Mm. I just, it was this, this, this shattering experience where my wife woke me up in the middle of the night. She shook me awake and said, something's really wrong. And I looked at the clock and said, 12.45 a.m., so I knew it was really early in the morning. I looked out the window. There was this glow on the horizon. And in fire season in Northern California, that is not a good thing. I dashed out the house. The lights all went out. And there was this wildfire just sweeping down the opposite hill toward through the valley toward this, the hill we lived on. And I just yelled at her, we're getting out of here right now. And we literally had time to throw on clothes, grab our phones, sprint for our car and drive out through the flames. And it was just the beginning of a, a shattering period. We, we went to some friend's house that night, right there around 3 a.m. We then got evacuated. Their home was in danger. We had to go a long way away to the coast. And that, like the next night, we, we, we went to bed. Just, we were just completely crazed and traumatized. We, we watched the sunset and it was just blood red because of all the embers in the the sky from this massive wildfire, it destroyed 5,400 homes. So suddenly all these people were just displaced and it was just, it was crazy for, for months after that, years after that actually. And the, the following morning though, we woke up in the morning in this motel room and I said to my wife, it's an emergency. We have to do something right now, right now. We have to meditate. It's a meditation emergency. I just realized we were we were out of our minds. I you know we we there were, I tell a lot lot more details in, in this brain in chapter one, but we were just had every symptom of people who've been traumatized. And so we sat up in bed, we meditated, and I literally felt myself drop back into my body. And that's why people dissociate when they're traumatized. When you're in, in the middle of a firefight or the middle of a horrible dispute between, between your parents and you're four years old. It's not safe to be in your body. So we go somewhere else. That's called association. And I, we'd been there, my wife and I, after the fire for a couple of days. We meditated. We dropped back in. And earlier, that the previous day, a friend of ours had gotten in to pass the National Guard and taking fo photographs of the house. And it showed just a concrete slab, ashes on top of that, and a chimney sticking out. The office was was a concrete slab. The cars were melted. The aluminum of the car, our cars melted. Everything was just a, a just ashes. And again, that that and five thousand four hundred other homes, and that just began a period of huge dis dislocation in our lives. And so, 
all of these things happened. But in the subsequent year, I would sit and meditate and we would just feel, I would just feel in meditation. I'd enter these states of absolute indescribable bliss. And I would think, you know, here I'm dealing with devastation in my life. Our business was wiped out. Our retirement savings were all wiped out as well in the aftermath of the fire. So we had no money. Our business tanked. We had very few possessions to try and cobble back together again. And so we were not in a very good good shape psychologically, financially, or materially. And yet I sit there on the couch in the morning and I was just in complete bliss. And I'd pick up my journal and I'd write about how prosperous I felt and how abundant I felt and how wonderful my life was when the other when the when the exterior reality was just not that at all. And so we did, of course, rebuild, we bounced back financially, we found a much nicer house eventually to live in. And so things did did shift for us in the next couple of years. But for all the people I, I thought back on who didn't have meditation, didn't have tapping, I had all these wonderful friends, energy healers and therapists wanting to do therapy with me. I needed help at that point. I couldn't have done it myself. So I had talented energy workers and therapists do. I had one image I couldn't get out of my head of as we were running toward the car past our, our office, which was a separate building on the property. I thought the fire hadn't quite caught up to us yet. And I, was, I thought to myself, Am I overreacting? And as I had that thought, a tree behind the office caught fire and one big ember must have struck it and the tree was old and dead and dry. It just went up like this massive sheet of flame behind the office. And I then thought, oh, no, Dawson, you are not overreacting. Let's get out of here right away. But I couldn't get that image out of my head. Nothing, tapping, meditation, nothing could get the image of that tree exploding behind the outside of my head. And eventually an energy worker did work on me and she did took her two hours of energetic work. And eventually I could remember that, that image without any emotional charge to it. So it's powerful to have these techniques and then you can live through events like that. And that's where chapter seven of this brain is about post-traumatic growth and how for many people, actually two thirds of people who go through a tragedy or a trauma wind up either being stable afterwards, not developing PTSD, or actually move to higher levels of, of psychological development, post-traumatic growth. Two thirds of people, that's our story. So we can learn these techniques and they do. Then when we're faced with life's challenges, make us resilient. And we then use those um, tragedies like the fire for me as fuel for our own personal development. So absolutely, we have stresses and these techniques, <laughs> they make all the difference. I'm reminded of Louis Pasteur's statement that chance favors the prepared mind. And you're giving an example of someone who had done a lot of me mental training of various kinds, multiple kinds, contemplative and psychotherapeutic and energetic that enabled you to move through what could have been, well, certainly was traumatic for you, but could have, could have ended up in a post-traumatic stress disorder. And yet, fortunately, you were able to to work through through it and even learn and grow in the process. And since I just quoted Louis Pasteur, let me uh, quote the correct wording of the, of the quote from Jung, which is that acceptance of oneself is the acid test of one's whole outlook on life, All right. uh, which says a lot. Amen.
the acid test of one's whole outlook on life. Um, let's see, we've covered a lot here and there's so much more we could cover, but I know you have to have to go in a few minutes, Dawson. Is there anything else you'd like to like to say? There's so much more that could be said, but is there anything in particular you'd like to focus on? You know, one thing bothers me every day, and that is how people live in sadness, in limitation. And like John, you were talking about anxiety and depression, and my heart really goes out to you that you suffered through that, and that you you found ways of working with yourself. And I I meet people at my workshops. I meet sometimes meet young people in their early twenties, and they they're successful financially, and then their careers, they're in the peak of health, and they're suffering, and they're just not doing well psychologically. And then you meet people in various parts of their lives and you realize they're living in a tiny fraction of their potential. And that just, I mean, to, to just say it honestly, it bugs me. It really bothers me that we live, we, I mean, we have this precious gift of a lifetime, you know, 20, 30, 50, 70, 150 years, however long it is. We have this gift of a lifetime. We have the gift of attention, of consciousness, of awareness. And people go and you know, check their alerts, watch TV, distract themselves, be miserable, follow out their programming, and don't look up and see their potential and, and really try and live it. And so what it, what really makes me passionate every day is, is offering people the tools to get out of it. I can't help those who are just not going to do it. And a lot of people, they'll, you, you know, you'll, I mean, T.S. Eliot said, every man stumbles across the truth occasionally. Most of them pick themselves up and walk on as if nothing had happened. So we stumble across the truth, and then we can actually do something about that. Let's love ourselves, tap, release our trauma, enter bliss brain, elevated states, and then live your full potential. And that is why I'm so committed to offering people in all these different ways. And not just me, I mean, there are thousands of, of people in psychology and spirituality and other fields that are passionate about this. And we have methods that work now. One of my friends said, you know, when my parents were growing up, they didn't have tapping, they didn't have EMDR, they didn't have all the psychotherapy tools we have today, they just suffered. And we have all of these things that could extricate ourselves from our suffering. And they're right there. Most of them are free on the web. You know, you want to uh, download my free mini manual. That's the one that's been downloaded over 3 million times. It's the free version of the EFT mini manual. It's right there. It's free. I'm giving it away. And I want you to have that. And so that that's free. Meditation's free. There are millions of free meditation tracks. If you go and look at all the possible sources, that, that they're there. Some more effective than others. In Bliss Brain, I explain which ones are the most effective and why, what science tells us about that. But you have all the tools now to live a magnificent life, to release your limitations and to fulfill your potential. And so I just am would say to those of you who are listening, don't live any less than your grandest life. Don't have just a little bit of love in your life. Have a ton of love in your life. Research shows that babies on average laugh 300 times a day, while the average adult laughs 20 times, times a day, 20 times a day. Why do we shut down our laughter, our joy, our creativity, and tell ourselves all these stories about our, our limitations? They're lies. They're just these self-perpetuating loops in our head. It's time to dump them, let them go, and then live our best lives. So I want to challenge you today. Don't just be inspired by this conversation that Roger, John, and I have been having today. Go and do those things. Meditate, tap, 
shift yourself, love yourself enough to apply these things in your life, have a practice of it, put it in your journal and write it in your online calendar, do it every day. And then you'll find that everything starts to shift and the sheer joy of living your full potential. So I think that's what I would encourage people to do the most. Beautiful. Thank you so much. And your, your point that we now have tools, contemplative, psychotherapeutic, energetic, that we just didn't have access to in our Western culture 50 years ago. And ideally, they will become part of our educational system so that education becomes more about getting a life, than getting a living. So, Dawson, thank you so much. This has been a, a gift for me and for all of us. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Wonderful work, too. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you, John. Thank you, Roger. It's a joy. <laughs> it is. Thank you, everyone. God bless. Today's episode was brought to you by iWake Technologies. Visit the Deep Transformation website to find out more about iAwake's audio tools designed to wake us up, grow us up as a part of our daily deep transformational practice. Thank you for joining us. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the Deep Transformation podcast, and we greatly appreciate your comments, suggestions, and questions. Thank you for all you are and all you do. From John, Roger, and the Deep Transformation team.